Hello and welcome to the Adnunk Podcast, the podcast for the Adelaide.net user group. I'm your host, David Gardner. This is the second recording from our April 2019 meeting about Blazor with Ben Lahn. And now, over to the presentation. Coming to these events now for, I don't know, five or six years. This is my fifth presentation, I think. So for you who've been around, you have to listen to me again. Sorry about that. Um, look, I... Uh, uh, going to talk about Blazor today. Blazor is a up-and-coming technology. Uh, it's not something I'm doing at work. As you can see here, I'm just tinkering with it. I'm always trying to tinker with something. Um, so I work for uh, Matrix Group, and uh, I'm the architect there, and uh, we build commodity handling solutions. We're in a um, uh, real-time SCADA platform. We build a 2D and 3D uh, interface for operation operation control of uh, um, mining and terminal control systems, so like uh, uh, engineering control consoles. And uh, we have 3D and 2D interfaces that uh, support those uh, operational um, requirements. So that's what I do in my day job. It's you know it's it's uh, not stuff. <coughs> we do have a web platform, but I don't normally work on that very much. So what I try and do outside of my work is just do something that's a bit different. And normally I do the whole JavaScript thing. Uh, I've been playing with JavaScript for years, as you can see there. And Blazor is a bit of an offshoot of that because it's exactly not JavaScript, and I'll go over that soon. And a fun fact for anyone who hasn't already read that, I just turned 44, and it occurred to me when I was writing this up here that I've been writing software professionally for 22 years, and I've been writing code since for 33 years, since I was 11. So it all just sort of fell in line for this little talk today. So uh, that's enough about me. So what is Blazor? Well, Blazor is a .NET-based single-page application framework. So it's, it's in the same vein as... Uh, React, Angular, Vue, Aurelia, whatever you're currently doing. That is, it's a um, it's a platform that is deployed entirely into the browser, runs in self-contained fashion, and you know makes calls out to remote servers. It's typical in that respect. Uh, the main benefit and the main uh, difference is that there's no JavaScript. It's all C sharp. In fact. There's a tiny bit of JavaScript if you need it, but in practice, you would need it. So Blazor is C-sharp with a hint of JavaScript. I think that's the best way to see it. In fact, I believe you could do it in VBNet or you know, F-sharp or whatever, but I don't know that for a fact because I've literally never seen anyone do that. But you probably can. Uh, Blazor uses Razor syntax. So if you've ever used uh, MVC, uh, there's the Razor uh, markup, there's Razor Pages, which is their newer version of that, which is a simplified uh, architecture, um, and it's it's pretty much the same programming model as that from the top level. Like when you look at it, it's hard to make the distinction between Razor or um, uh, Blazor, and obviously the name implies that somehow, I suppose. The real, real benefit of Blazor is, though, that you just use .NET code that you wrote or that someone else wrote that's uh, .NET standard 2.0 compliant. So if you're using any modern library, and I mean, realistically, all the big uh, third-party uh, you know, open-source providers have targeted .NET standard 2 by now, you can just use that. And broadly speaking, that's true. 
it's not entirely true. You are running the uh, the .NET code is running within the JavaScript uh, the browser's uh, sandbox. You can't escape that. You're not running on the metal. You're still inside the virtual machine, so you can't hit the file system. And although you can hit the network, you are doing it through a proxy system that goes over um, XHR in the standard way. Like you can't avoid that. So um, that's the crux of the .NET. Um, <laughs> you trying to avoid it, Jack? No, no, no. Sorry, <laughs> right. I like the way that the Christ of .NET. It's like, yeah. <laughs> um, so it works in any modern browser, and I did look that up, and the definition of modern browser is all browsers except for IE. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's intentional. Like they just didn't want to change it. You know, whoever depends on it doesn't want it to change. If you ever worked in a corporate IT department, you know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, IE is horrible. See, well, no, the IT departments that love IE being what it is is the important thing. So obviously, it works in Edge and all the Edge variants of the future. So if you were thinking about a modern design, well, that would be a, a, a easy change. Uh, importantly it can act interop with JavaScript. And this is actually critical to the design of your single-page application because one of the core features of uh, the <coughs> underlying infrastructure is that the execution model can't access the DOM. It can only do logic. If you want to talk to the DOM, you've got to, you've got to interop through the JS layer. So there's Blazor has provisioning for that. It's fairly high level. You don't really need to think about it too much, but it is worth keeping in mind. If you did want to bring up a, you know, alert dialog or a uh, input or something confirm or whatever, that has to be JavaScript. There's no way around that. Unless, um, well, even if you want to generate DOM and all that, you still have to do JavaScript. But Blazor is abstracting all that. So as much as I've said that, you probably don't need to do it. Um, but under the covers, you definitely do. Now the final point is important. And everywhere I read a document about Blazor, everyone starts with this. So I thought I'd put it on the front page. Blazor is experimental. It's unsupported. It doesn't work. Don't use it. It's not ready. And as an aside, I was saying before we come here today, uh, before uh, we started, I've been using it, and that's entirely true. All right, so, but you can see that it will be ready. It will make it. It looks really good. It's just it's very young. Um, so... If you had plans to use Blazor for production and this was the final thing you needed, just me talking about it today, just change your plans, all right? <laughs> okay. Um, so, having I first heard that, about... Having said that... Yes? Um, have you seen the Tri.net? Yeah. Where it's all running? Yeah. Are you talking about that? No. No, I'm not. But there is actually a Blazor Fiddle, which is exactly the same in that sense. Yeah. And fair enough too. If if it wasn't you know critical infrastructure, you could probably get away with it because it actually does work. It's not too bad. In fact, the end of this presentation, I've got a list of links, and one of the links is all the websites that the community built in Blazor, and it's quite a lot. So clearly, people are disregarding that last comment, <laughs> right? So I I also am disregarding. Now, the reason I was interested in Blaze when it first came out is because I was watching uh, the .NET community stand-up and they, uh, they um, sent the camera down to the Microsoft's annual Hackfest. Basically, they put up a huge tent in a park nearby 
and they've got all the programmers in one room for the weekend and they just eat pizza and write code. And there was Steve Sanderson and he was working on this idea and they were talking to him, they interviewed him and he said, he explained what he was doing and I thought, that's crazy. Everyone thought it was crazy, but there it was, it was working. And it was pretty crappy at the time, but the concept was brilliant. Uh, and Steve Sanderson, for those of you who don't know, is a bit of a um, pioneer in terms of single-page applications. Um, one of the first modern tech frameworks that was in that vein is the Knockout JS, and I've been using that since 2012, I reckon, 2011. And he built that nine years ago almost. Uh, and it was really the first MVVM-type architecture in the browser using JavaScript. And look, by modern standards, it's a bit crusty. You know, uh, it's all attribute-based inside the markup and you know, lots of comments, syntax, and whatever, but it's quite clever. And uh, his mind, um, he knows how to solve this problem. So I had, I had a lot of faith in him. Um, in fact, that uh, article there that I've, I've got a link to... Um, is a pre presentation of his initial ideas. It's quite interesting. A lot of that's changed. His initial designs were uh, very different to what we have now. Um, basically, he wasn't using .NET, but using a uh, basically an undergraduate's uh, open source, abandoned C-style version of a minimal .NET that he'd done for his uh, graduate <laughs> program. That's right. And that version was able to be bootstrapped into WebAssembly. So that was the thing that they were working on. It was a bit of a uh, you know, tough start, but that, that was good enough. And I, I can't even remember what it was called. It was just, but read the article if you like history, because it's quite um, interesting. Um, what's interesting about Blazor is that Steve Sanderson, is built, he built this as a you know, open... Uh, private project, just hacking on it. Uh, then you've got the Microsoft in, uh, time investment through the Hackfest. But soon after, he incorporated a lot of Microsoft people into hacking on it, and it, it gained a, enough notoriety inside DevDiv that they basically brought it in as a bit of a uh, um, experimental trial, you know, um, just to see where it could go. And it was tucked in under ASP.NET, which is um, where it still is. And uh, out of that's come something very interesting, and that is that the fundamental design of using Razor for pushing uh, and the Razor component model has been extracted out of Blazor, okay, and is now a part of ASP.NET Core 3 in Preview 3. So if you don't care about WebAssembly and Blazor, but you love the component model, you can actually use Razor components uh, as a... .NET Core 3, so it's not ready, and in fact, I find it a little bit buggy, but it's not too bad, and I'll show you some of that briefly, but it is exactly the same programming model. There is <coughs> functional differences between the way the hosting is occurring and where the execution is occurring, I'll go over that, but fundamentally, it's the same code, which I think is pretty cool, because in theory, you could actually swap out your your Razor components, which is a server-based technology, and push it into Blazor without uh, any changes at all. So if that comes to pass, and my experience is it's not that clear-cut just yet, but I think it will be, I think that's a very powerful um, paradigm. Uh, and finally, I, I did mention that there was some weird .NET runtime that was being used for the original 
uh, version of Blazor, it didn't take them long to realise that they needed a proper .NET implementation. And so the guys over at Xamarin, particularly um, Miguel, they got onto that and uh, and they, they used the mono runtime, which is a very small, compact, efficient C-based uh, runtime, .NET runtime, and they, they built Blazor on top of that. Okay, and that's super powerful. So those guys have been critical in making this happen. And uh, I think that when you combine the, the .NET dev group and the Mono group, it's just a super powerful group that could be uh, producing this. And I think the results of that are... Uh, sorry, did I jump ahead there? Yeah, I did. The results of that, although not yet proven, they do look very promising. So look... This section, what is WebAssembly, could be the whole talk. Honestly, it's just it's not very specific to .NET. In fact, not one thing about WebAssembly has got to do with .NET. So, and further, last month we already talked about WebAssembly. The crux of WebAssembly is that um, it's a standard. The browsers all support it. Um, there's even a fallback strategy using JavaScript. I can't imagine that's particularly performant, but it does execute. Um, and yeah, it's not supported by IE, which I already mentioned. So, what is WebAssembly? In short, it's a it's a it's a set of instructions similar to IL or Java's bytecode. It's a very primitive, stack-based, opcode-style programming language. You wouldn't write it by hand, but it's a target for compilers. So, uh, you can take C code put it through their mscripting compiler, and out comes uh, WASM. And uh, WASM is basically a... Um, it has two versions. It's got a byte stream, which you can't <coughs> interpret, and there's also a textual representation, uh, which you also can't <coughs> interpret. It looks like Lisp, to be honest. Oh, um, yeah. Um, now, I didn't bother to bring that up. If you really care, there are some links at the end. There's, like I said, it's a massive thing, but there's literally nothing to do with .NET, so I, I thought I'd skip that, given that we've got heaps of other stuff to go over. But um, the main compiler for that is mscripten. Has anyone here heard of mscripten? Yeah, we've got one, two people. It's, it's a compiler, a C compiler that can just have uh, various backends, and one of the backends is the uh, WebAssembly so um, it's pretty cool. So what the Mono guys did is they took mscripten and made Mono, uh, they compiled Mono against mscripten and out came uh, a WASM-based assembly of Mono. So Mono.WASM is a file that runs the .NET framework on WebAssembly. Okay, so you have to really think about this. It's okay? kind of an XOR, right? <laughs> It's yeah. XOR things, right? XOR, XOR, it's come back, same thing. No, 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 it's, it's a layer cake, right? At the bottom, you've got the the browser's virtual machine, then the layer in between, the, the next layer is WebAssembly uh, machine, essentially, okay? Which is like a, um, a very thin layer down to the uh, to the, the virtual machine of the browser, and then on top of that, you've got the mono virtual machine, the, oh, the CLR. Okay. It's running on that next one, literally. So this is an inception problem, really, right? I and then see. on top of that is your code, and your code is being interpreted in mono. So it's, it's running your IL, line at a time, 
and, and running so that in It's an ST, abstract synthetic tree, run time, isn't it? There's no ST. I, I was much lower layer than that. It's just push and pop and, you know, it's opcode. So. Yeah, okay. Um, and it's actually pretty good for performance because at the end of the day, the, the WebAssembly abstraction is very thin. It's not a heavy abstraction. It, the biggest problems with it are it has its own garbage collector, you, and so when you've got the virtual machine in JavaScript and WASM and then the mono garbage collector, you've got layers and layers of memory shuffling up and down. So in terms of efficiency, it does suffer for that. And so that's why they say, and this is Steve Sands' number, I can't verify this, but they're saying it's about two times slower. So it's half the speed of running your .NET code on your core directly. It's not too bad when you're just talking about hiding and showing divs, right? how many times a second you really need to do that, right? So at the end of the day, uh, WebAssembly is the, the target of the mono runtime. It is just like .NET runs on x86 or ARM or something else, if the target is WASM. That's all you need to understand, and then that is itself a virtualized machine. Um, which I think is pretty cool. And, uh, you know, the fun part about that is who would think to do that? I mean, honestly, like it's just you know one too many layers of uh, of turtles on that one. I think. <laughs> okay. So, what is mono? Has anyone here ever used mono? Okay, a couple of people. Mono historically was the open source alternative to .NET framework for Linux and the Mac. Or essentially, it was the redheaded stepchild of the .NET implementation. Uh, there's nothing wrong with Mono, but because it was you know, not Microsoft for a long time, it was sort of to the side. And uh, a lot of the brilliance of the Mono guys was to be able to implement the .NET framework without having seen the source code of the .NET framework. They just did it based on the spec, and they even implemented the bugs in the same way and all that. That's pretty cool, <laughs> right? Um, in fact, when Microsoft bought Xamarin, when Mono then became under the umbrella of Microsoft, the first thing the Mono guys did was rush down to the source code and read what the actual implementation of the .NET garbage collector was and various other, you know, esoteric implementations, and they literally <coughs> ripped out theirs and replaced with the .NET version. So they, Mono is becoming a version of .NET in that respect. It's all the all the core things are being assimilated. And ultimately, the, the goal of Mono is not to become yet another .NET framework, but to become a, a micro version, a, a uh, efficient, uh, low-powered, low-low um, low, uh, uh, low yield, basically for phones. That's the real goal of Mono, right? Like you want to run on a phone, you want to crash the battery, you, do, you just want it to be uh, you know, good enough. Yeah, there's a sad story about Model. There used to be a, a team from Model did a Microsoft a micro framework. Uh -huh. That's one that was uh, before I came to Australia. I was working with Microsoft. The team was doing that. They even get Ruby code in there. So and then they, yeah, they killed the project. I think they were uh, revived that project for a bit and then they killed it again. So it's very footprint. You remember there was a laptop that time has a another screens on the top of the cover, a little one. Mm -hmm. Or as soon as I was thinking of doing that, they're using that one at time. Okay. So sort of, yeah, I was uh, involved in that project. So right. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't know about that, but I, I do know that Mono has got 
a life of its own outside of that. It's running in Unity now. So Mono is actually pretty pretty first class. It runs in Unity. Uh, if you want to embed the .NET framework, Mono is a choice for that reason. And then one of the reasons for that is it's really small. When the Mono assembly, the WASM assembly, goes down to the um, WebAssembly runtime, it's only 2 meg. So, look, it's pretty big for a web page, but as a runtime, that's actually pretty efficient. So, if they were to send the proper .NET runtime, it's about 20 meg or so for the minimum set. So, I think they've done a pretty good job there. Um, as I said there, it is written in C, and it was cross-compiled down to WASM. One of the features of Mono that's uh, really critical to the success of this project was they're already cross-compiling to iOS and Android. So one of the features of Xamarin is you write your code in C Sharp and it actually creates a native assembly for Android or iOS. So this is a third target. So that, that's something they do. They know that pretty well. Um, and the last thing here I mentioned is uh, there's potential for ahead-of-time compiled mode because the Mono guys, as I said, are already in the, the game of converting C Sharp into native assembly. Well, in theory, they could generate uh, a native assembly for your code. So your code.dll gets compiled, not into a DLL as such, but into a WASM file. And so you can skip the mono runtime entirely. Your code goes directly into the browser and sits on the WebAssembly layer. Uh, that is not yet um, <coughs> out the door. And I'll mention more about that soon. But it, I think that's got an interesting potential because... Uh, especially if you've got a really small, uh, constrained code base, you know, you don't have a lot of third-party dependencies, uh, you could get just your code into a browser, and that, that could be quite powerful, particularly if you're going to do interrupt with your existing JavaScript. So keep that in mind. That's, that's for the future. So the main mode is the interpreter mode. So what is an interpreter? An interpreter is the mono... Executable, if you call it that, it's, it's a WASM file. That's the part that's running on the WebAssembly. It's reading your IL a line at a time. If you've ever written an interpreter, that's basically what you do. You read the command, you execute the command, and you, you build a virtual machine in state in, in your system. Uh, that's how that works now. And, um, and so, um, yeah, so as I said in that first line, your code is not involved here. This is just the mono runtime itself. It's executing your code as data. Your DLL is actually just a pile of instructions. It's executing them in interpreted mode. Um, and this is the standard model that you would imagine you'd do. There's a lot of advantages to this, particularly around um, if once you've cached the mono runtime, you're only sending down your DLL. Your DLL is probably really small. And so uh, subsequent, uh, subsequent reruns of that page, you're actually pretty efficient. Um, the, and the last point here is really key, it's not jitted. Right? You know, when you run .NET code now, the .NET runtime, full .NET code uh, runtime, or even .NET core, you don't interpret the I.O. It actually generates native code on demand uh, as the code is being first executed. And so eventually your entire code base is being written to disk as native images. That's not what's happening here. It just runs over that code line by line each and every time. So if, if you had intensive um, processor-oriented code, you know, let's say you were calculating pi for some reason or 
something you know very CPU intensive, you would see a, a uh, an overhead here because it's interpreted. It's got all the overhead of the mono interpreter, but it's quite flexible. Okay, so that's the mode you get out of the box right now. That's the one that um, they're going to deliver, and I think unless something strange happens that I haven't been following, there's no good reason why this won't happen. There are probably a couple of occasions where you want ahead of time, but mostly I don't think it's going to be that relevant. Uh, so the difference here is, as it says here, you, you do your standard dev work there, but then you recompile your DLL to WASM, and this process here is essentially um, converting IL to WASM uh, either as part of the compiler step or maybe as, a, as like a published step or something like that. Um, if that happens, your file and the, and the, um, the mono runtime, the minimum .NET runtime, will be the only things there. And you can use uh, tree-shaking technologies to limit the amount of superfluous instructions that go down the wire. But you're still going to end up with a rather large set of WASM files there because there is no runtime, there's no mono anymore, it's just your code, the mono code, any other third-party dependencies executing on the WASM layer. So I don't know if this is going to be a main thing. I did bring it in here because there are people who are asking for it and there's certainly talk by the mono team they're going to deliver it. Whether it's useful, uh, it's going to be hard to, hard to know, but um, I mentioned that anyway. So... Now we're going to get on to the actual topic at hand. I, I realise that talking about mono for uh, the infrastructure is uh, a lot to take in. It's not specific to Blazor, but it is the fundamentals of how it works. So I wanted to, to start with that. So what I'm going to do now is talk about actual Blazor. Um, now, talking about these things here is going to be pretty dry because, you know... A lot of it you want to see code. So what I've done is I've got a project, I've got several projects uh, that we can have a look at um, just to give some of the, the ideas, okay, and uh, give a bit of reasoning about our works. So I'm going to start off by um, talking about data binding. Data binding is, as you would expect, it's very much the same as Aurelia or, or uh, Angular or Vue where um, you just declare the value is bound to, you know, the title or the, you know, the date or whatever. It's just magic, basically. It just, you know, you just do it and it works. And it's not magic, obviously. There's even special source, but you hopefully can ignore it. Um, but that's one of the fundamental features of Razor. Um, and then I'm going to go down to some of the infrastructure and the plumbing that makes all this possible. So to do that, I'm going to go away from the slide. I'm going to bring up some code. Okay, so to get us started, no, I'm not going to load that one. All right, to get us started, I'm going to. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you know what? I don't even know how to do that. <laughs> I, I, I bet it's because PowerPoint is in um, in this mode. Oh, yeah, actually, I know what to do. Okay, there we go. So now I actually have to share my screen, don't I? I have to duplicate it. No, you already did. Because I can't see it. Now. Uh. <laughs> right? 
you rather did. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, code. So, this is a non-trivial example, and the reason I bring it up is because it's something I've been working on, but it sort of gives you an idea immediately of what's possible <coughs> with uh, Blazor. So, first thing you see is there's no HTML here. There could be. You're allowed to embed HTML here, but there's HTML there. But generally, the goal for Razor, Blazor, excuse me, and Razor, is that you don't write a lot of markup in your main screens. You write components. So in this instance here, I write a header component, a toolbar component, a button component, whatever. Right? Like this is all just components, components all the way down. Um, and then in you write each of these components becomes a small fragment of code. It's very much like the React model, right? That you yeah. write a very awesome. small fragment of code. And, um, you know, like as you can see here, I've got a pile of files. They're all the components, right? Um, they're mostly small. Like it's almost just a fragment, four or five lines each. Uh, but the idea is that you can build um, very basic but very functional uh, code that way. So I'm just going to fire it up just so you can have a look at it. Uh so it runs on .NET Core, as you can see here, I'm running it up, all right? And as per usual with .NET Core, you've got that small overhead to load it, but I'll run it up. And so you can see here, I've got a wait, and then it loads up. And if you go to the network tab there, um, you can see we're doing non-trivial amount of loading, but the page come up. It's not too oh, bad. Yeah, interesting. All right? And you can see here that uh, it loads lots of stuff, and it's not too bad overall, but, you know, it's not going to win any awards for fastest <laughs> page load. But it's actually not too bad. This is a fairly decent computer, but it's not special. And uh, I haven't actually run it on my phone yet, but I've been meaning to. But um, this page here is... I'm going to bring that up next to the code so that you can hopefully get a sense of it. Oh, I know that's in full screen mode, that's why I'm not happy. There we go. So, you can see I've got a header, I've got a body, the, the header's got a toolbar with buttons, etc., and it all maps pretty cleanly, right? Like, we've got a, a list here, and the list is bound to books. It's pretty nice. Like, as a programming style, you'd be pretty happy to write this. To me, as I write WPF all day long, I like this. This is good, it's clean. It's really easy to work with. There's not many downsides to this. Now, just to be clear, when you see this, that you think, well, what's eye on this and eye on that? Um, the CSS is the Ionic CSS from the Ionic uh, framework. I'm not a CSS guy. If I have to do CSS, I'm not happy. Um, so, yeah, I just stole their CSS file, but I haven't used a single line of their logic. I just wrote you know, the minimum amount of code to make it look the same. It's not perfect. So I'm going to call this Ionic Inspired. All right? <laughs> um, actually, I have a name for this. I'm calling this uh, project uh, Blazion. It's Blazor and Ionic. All right? Now, for anyone who's a... Um, actually, I'm going to just show you this because uh, my son loves it. There it is. That's Blazion. Okay. <laughs> that guy. Does anyone recognize him? Come on, you own up to it. 
No. No. Right, my, my son's eight. This is uh, Blazion from Yukai or Yu. Y- y- I don't know. I think it's Yukai. Yo. Doesn't matter. Yukio. That could be it. Some see. No one's owning up to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I thought right. This guy. So, I, look, my son walks around saying this guy's name all the time, right? And I was one day thinking, what am I going to call my project? I'm like, that is the name, right? So, look, I don't have the <coughs> license for that, but uh, we'll just pretend I do, okay? <laughs> so, I think it's pretty cool. I'll just show you a couple of things here. And shall I hide that side panel for now? That's the code. We'll go to that in a minute. But um, the first feature of Blazor, actually, I want to make a small detour, and that is to say I said earlier that there was a spin-off to uh, the Blazor technology called uh, that found its way into ASP.NET Core 3. It's called Razor Components. And Razor Components is the technology umbrella term that they're now using in marketing. The strange part about that is the technology for this that you're looking here is also called Razor Components, okay? And Blazor, the technology marketing term, uses Razor Components, as does Razor Components. Now, I don't know what they're thinking. You've got two different things, Razor Components and Blazor, and they both use Razor Components, okay? So what are Razor Components? It's just markup, <laughs> right? It's essentially modern tag helpers. Okay, so if you've done anything with uh, the previous iterations of MVC tag helpers, that's what this is. I think it's a cleaner version of it, and quite frankly, I'll never go back. Um, so, um, when you build uh, in uh, Razor components, you always build a component. So this thing itself is a component, the index page. You've got this um, uh, metadata at the top, and that's essentially the same as you'd have if you're building Razor pages, server-side stuff. You're saying, these are my routes, nice and easy. I've got to pull in some using clauses, and I've got some base class. Okay. Now, if you go anywhere on the internet and have a look at uh, Razor, or uh, Razor components, or Blazor, you're going to see this. Okay, now, I don't like this, but this is the bare-bones implementation. Like This is the uh, demo... This is demo 101. What you see is some markup. Oh, you see, you've got the same directive. You've got some markup, and then you've got this functions block. So you can just put all your code right there. There's no class or whatever. I don't really like this. You can do this if it was just something oh, minor. Oh, it's called primitive, it looks like. Yeah, interesting. Now, it is this Razor extension, because um, Razor components, the product, has got a different extension, and obviously VS Code doesn't know about it, but... What happens is the compiler will generate a file and it will embed that into the yeah. class that it generates. I don't really like that, but you can see from a um, getting started basis, it's really nice. You've just got some some state, you have a function, you can bind your function yeah. on click and you can pass it, you can capture an argument in, in there. So this is the, the minimum uh, demo, but it's not even worth running out because all it is is you press the button and the number goes up. If you really want to see that, come see me afterwards. Um, but it is as it sounds. <laughs> um, so this actually is Razor components. This is all server-side. So I'll, I'll run that up later when we get to that section just to show you how that network trace looks. It looks very different to, to the one I'm working on. Um, so I'll just jump back to where we're up to here. So data binding, we saw that data binding is as simple as... Uh, 
embedding uh, some type of property, like this is a books collection. Um, you can also bind functions. Well, that's an action, as you can see there. Like it's, it's not the best syntax, but the, the, if you want to capture a state, you have to do it this way. If you don't want to capture state, you can just do this. This is just the name of the function. Okay, and that just works. That's pretty cool. So um, the example being here, you're switching from... Well, I've lost that. It's not ideal. Uh, if you're just switching from here to here, well, they just call a function. I could have made that call a function with you know, an argument, and then you'd have to use that syntax. But if there's no argument, you just call like that. Um, and you can see... Um, here I've got this expression captured on the activated, so you know it's either true or false, and that just puts that line there. You know, it's not, not that great, but uh, in terms of the component, it's pretty clean, right? So the first feature and the most important feature of race components is that if you want to bind an object to uh, any part of the markup, you just you just basically use that symbol and you put it in there and you're done. And that's it. That works. There's nothing to do. You don't have to write any code. If your object is um, read-only or uh, never going to change, you don't have to do anything. If, the, if it changes under the covers, you may have to call a method that just state has changed, and that triggers a redraw of that part of the graph. But if it's driven by user click, you don't even have to do that. In fact, I think I've only got one call in the whole system that does that, so it's not critical. But um, <coughs> data binding is top-notch, and that really reflects the knockout heritage of this project. And uh, I also use Aurelia, and it's the same core syntax. And in fact, um, I have this exact project. It looks exactly like that in Aurelia. So Aurelia Ionic on my GitHub account. It's basically the same thing. So that's why I did this. I want to see what was the difference. So if anyone's interested in that, I think um, once this goes up on GitHub, you can contrast them. You'll see that it's actually very similar uh, in style in, uh, in every part, actually. Uh, the next feature of, uh, of Blazor is parameters. And parameters are... What I'm going to do now is just show you an actual component. So here we've got the iron toolbar, and it's got a colour of primary. Okay, So that's just an enum that I defined somewhere. So you're using all .NET stuff here. It's not a string, that is an actual enum. And if we go look at the colour parameter... We're going to see that. So this is the object, and this is its parameters, which are essentially its attributes. They call them parameters. I'm not convinced by the name. But, uh, well, let's have a look. So we'll start with the markup. It's just HTML and a body, basically. So we're going to ignore that for now. And we'll look at the component. There it is. So clearly not a lot going on here. We've declared color some enum, and it's a parameter. And that's the only thing you need to do to be able to assign that parameter in your markup. It's pretty straightforward. There's another one there, show border bottom. I think I'll put that in because of some hack in the CSS I don't quite understand. Um, but it doesn't matter because it works pretty nice. Actually, I might have been... No, no I think that's a hack. Um, one thing you will notice is it says protected here. For some reason that I don't know, these methods have to be protected. They're public, you get an error. <laughs> I don't know. It's intentional. You will notice that this is a class, Ion Toolbar Component, and the uh, 
the markup inherits from that. Now, it doesn't have to be like this. I could have put those small chunk of code there. This is a style thing. I like to do this. You would think that this would generate a, a partial class, and you could just write the other partial. It doesn't do that. I don't know why. You have to use inheritance. It's a bit annoying. Um, I think they're going to fix that. Like, that's what partials are invented for. Uh, that would be nice, but inheritance not that bad. And you see here, this is the unpleasant Ionic CSS that you don't want to write every time you put a toolbar down, right? Um, and the CSS is interesting because the element name is part of all the uh, selectors in Ionic, so it's really key that that's what you deliver. Um, child content is quite interesting. I'm going to talk about that now. Um, that's a type of parameter, and it's a type of parameter um, that we're going to just drill into. I'm going to have to remember to pin this. What's that? Why possibly why it's become protected? I couldn't tell you, but you'll notice here I've got this uh, base content component. This is just a simple abstraction that just simplifies one small thing. The child content property, which we just saw, it's a parameter of type render fragment, and render fragments are really important because what they are is a way to generate child content. It's like a region or something like that. You know, Prism uh, has regions. It's the same as that. Um, it's like a slot if you use Aurelia, which is um, part of the um, web components uh, standard. And they're really quite clean. You can call this whatever you like. But you can see there, if we go back to the index page, all of this child. Yep, becomes that child content yeah. at runtime, right? And so it's quite elegant. You it's can just nest high order components. Yeah, it's a, really, it's a composition model. It's yeah. very clean. It's really, it's I think, very powerful. So if you just went away today with the understanding of parameters and render fragments, you'd be pretty far along the path of being able to write Blazor because that's the bulk of it. There are a lot of <coughs> extension points that I've been looking into, uh, but that's really it. The rest of it, you know, if we, we're not going to do this, but if we went through every file, it's 99% horrible CSS and the odd little conditional logic just to, you know, turn one thing on or off. Okay, so it's really basic. And uh, mostly it's not worth looking at. <laughs> mostly. So the things that are worth looking at are things like cascading values. This is an extension point that gives you a lot of power. Uh, the example that I want to give is when we load this page up. Let's say I click on this here. See, I get the spinny weight, you know, that pretends that it does something, which it doesn't, but, you know... <laughs> There's actual sleep code for that. <laughs> um, you don't want to have to write that in your every component, right? Like it's the sort of thing that you want to have done in a, architecturally. You want to have that done uh, top level, yeah, right? Yeah. So in many times you write this using some type of event architecture. You know, you do a publish and something subscribes, whatever. You could do that here. I didn't. I think that was too much overhead. So what I did instead was I. Um, I do need to load up. <clears throat> yeah. I'm going to load up the actual landing page for a second. Okay. There it is there. So this landing page builds the original host for the application, like every single page application has one of these, it's basically got the loading screen in it, and that's it, right? 
and the rest of it is just CSS, so it doesn't look horrible. And then you load up the WebAssembly and that bootstraps your stuff. But what actually happens is this app, uh, sorry, this app uh, element is replaced at runtime with your actual application. And that's done through um, startup file. I'll show you that. Now we've got some scope of uh, this one. There you go. And this basically says the app is going to run the program, and the program is going to bootstrap the app. And that looks like uh, that guy runs startup. Startup, you know, this is all oh, typical yeah. uh, Razory type MVC stuff. And then finally, run the app in the app element. That's it, right? So what is the app? Well, ultimately the app is um, is the Ion app class, which is the wrapper class around the whole thing. Okay, so in Ionic framework, you must have an Ion app at the top. It's the root. Everything is inside it. So I put this spinner in here. Okay, it's pretty cool. But so now the, only the app has a spinner in it. And if we want to signal from some logic, hey, app, start spinning. Well, you've got to have a way to contact the app. So you could have a global, some sort of static somewhere that wouldn't be classy. You know, no one's doing that these days. So what you do instead is use this cascading value. Okay. See how it says the cascading value value equals this? Syntax would be awkward, but what we're basically saying is I'm going to declare in the outer scope a, a value of this, which is essentially goes into a dictionary saying, well, this is type is ion app. And so I've got this ion app in the dictionary. And then anything inside that scope of the cascading value will be able to retrieve it by walking up the hierarchy to look for it. Okay, so inside the edit, inside the index component, you won't see any reference to that. But if we go to the, sorry, if we go to the markup for this file, I've written. I'll just make that a little bit bigger. written a busy function, you know, so this is the thing that's going to do the spinning while the action occurs inside, and what does it do? In the base component, so any component can do this, but realistically you wouldn't have your, your uh, well you could, but you know, you wouldn't have any component do it, but you could. What we do is, we just call start loading on the app. So what is the app? Where does that come from? Let's look at its declaration. And it's just an iron app type. It's a cascading parameter, which means when this is in, this object is uh, declared, when the base object, so that would be the index screen or the edit screen, it'll, get, it'll walk up its hierarchy, its ownership scope, looking for the type iron app. And so it automatically will propagate down into here. So this paradigm is used for a lot of things. Um, or potentially, a good example that I haven't implemented but meets this criteria really well is if you had a component that was called a tab group and then you have individual tab components, well, generally um, the tab component will need to tell the tab group something, you know, like it needs to know if it's active or whatever. And so it would register a cascading value of tab parent and it will walk up the tree and find the nearest one, which will 
probably be its direct parent, grab a link to it, and then it can interact with it. So um, that that um, cascading parameter is quite key once you start building composable structures. Uh, if you're just building an independent object, you don't really have much scope for this. But if you want to do something a bit more advanced, then it becomes critical. And in fact, I just discovered this in the last week. Cascading parameters are used by Microsoft in their Razor component uh, engine for the edit screen. So when you have an edit screen, you, you can wrap your, just like a form in HTML, you wrap the, the collection of inputs into a edit something, edit form, and then it registers a cascading value, and all the inputs then can pick up that reference, and they can signal to that edit form validation errors and other types of uh, aggregated um, aggregated messages. And so the, mess, the validation architecture is built around this cascading parameter concept. So although that's in the in the weeds a little of how the um, how it works, like I said, you don't need to know it. It's quite useful because that's that's a really powerful concept. Um, okay, dependency injection. This is not that not that interesting. I mean, we all do dependency injection these days, right? Right? Is it anyone here not doing dependency injection yet? I mean, it's been around for at least ten years. You, if you want that URI helper, you just ask for it. That's it. Right? The engine will give you that at runtime. You can make your own. You know, it's just a standard thing. So it's just a property-based injection model. Uh, it's worth pointing out, but it's not by any means exciting. But it's built in, which is good. Um, I do want to talk about templating. This is really powerful, and I think this really shows the power of C-sharp here, because when we say template, we actually mean generics. So I showed earlier the item collection. I'll go back to that. Here we have an ion list of items, where we've got a book, right? And uh, inside there, I create an item template. I'm going to show you how all this works. I think this is really fundamental. What I'm going to do, just to simplify it for now, is just show you that all this is, is a list with a template. This, if anyone here does WPF, you should feel right at home here. It's exactly the same. So how does this work? Well, item template is the key. So I'm going to show you that code. Here's an ion list component. Remember, there is some markup, but it's sort of pointless. It's just a for each loop or something. Oh, I see. But you see here, we just say it's a render fragment of T item. Yep. Okay? T item is the generic type. Base, yeah. And then we will just render fragment basically saying the item template will have a context whose type is T item. And then from within there, and, you know, when I watch the demos, Visual Studio in particular does... Um, IntelliSense on this, but I can assure you the VS Code <laughs> does not, right? But in the demos, 2019, that works a treat, okay? Now, you see here I've got this context. If you don't have context, you get the word context as your iterator variable, but obviously you don't want that, so you just say, I want my variable to be called book in this instance, right? Nice and simple. And then you can just use that in your... So yeah, VS Code, look, I like VS Code because it starts straight away and doesn't give you any trouble, but it also doesn't help you that very much. Okay? Uh, I suspect that's going to improve. Um, look, I don't want to get into the depths of all these components because it doesn't really matter. The crux of it is you've got a template. 
It's item books. Notice how I didn't declare the type books here. You can do that. I can come up here and go T item. Once again, the demo always shows this as being based in TallySense. You can do that. You can say it's T item book. But just like in normal.NET, if you can infer the type of T item from the items collection, you don't have to declare it, right? It's exactly the same. So you don't have to put this here and you don't want to. Um, so I'll get rid of it. So you can see that this render fragment has come up again and again. This is basically the plumbing side of how all this works. And it's quite important. Um, in a minute, I'm going to show you the next level down about what's really going on here. But um, I'm conscious of the time. I'm, uh, I mean, I, this is a big topic, as you can see. Uh, yeah, and look, I'll skip the rest of it in terms of the actual code, but there's there's also a, a layout system, the same as uh, MVC or Razor or etc. So there's layouts. There's also forms. I mentioned that briefly. There's an attribute-based validation. So if you have your standard... Uh, uh, does anyone here use attribute-based validation at all? Right, so if you, so I love this stuff. So this is right up my alley. If you're <laughs> if you're doing um, MVC or you're doing uh, uh, WPF, there's infrastructure to support mm. binding to the object and uh, digging out metadata about whether it's valid or not, and then rendering that in your yeah. UI. Pretty, pretty much automatic, up. right? Pretty much automatic. If you do that right, uh, it's it's very very clever. And it, out of the box, they're doing all that right. Like you just put one tag in one. You know, validation message structure, and you'll just get that straight out of your markup. So I think it's pretty cool. I won't go over that because um, we're going to run out of time. I can feel it. Uh, but the power is there. You can see that, right? It's very expressive. It's .NET all the way down. I only showed you C sharp code. Everything just functions. You'll see the code is not. Um, there's, there's no clever code here. So I should just show you that briefly in case you didn't really look, but. Um, Every every class we look at is going to be this, you know. It's just that, and that's it. You know what I mean? It's just nice, clean C sharp. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I I was that close to doing this presentation in in VS Code instead of PowerPoint. I was that close because so I, I was nah, I, next time next year I am all right. I was that close. Um, that's annoying. Right. So, you know, you've got lifestyle, lifetime hooks here. I've got uh, over here, yeah. we, we hook into the uh, init method and we do some work. Here's another example where I needed to get this item which and manipulate these classes and things at runtime. Uh, this is a cascading value, and this is because, uh, cascading parameter, this is because Ionic, if you make a label floating, it has to affect its parent's item CSS. Like, uh, that's actually add a class to the parent. You could imagine in jQuery, you'd just write some, you know, parent selector or whatever. Here, you, you have to do it through their mechanisms. So, once again, cascading parameters, they pop up all the time. But generally, there's not much going on. Like, here, a click. Well, obviously, a label could be clicked, right? It's just an action. It's all things you do every day. Like, as a .NET programmer, you won't be overwhelmed by any of this. So, 
briefly, I'm going to mention raised components once more. What is raised components? It's exactly the same thing except, yeah, except one thing. It doesn't run in the browser. It runs on the server. And the only thing that goes to the client is the markup. You might imagine, hey, that sounds a bit like web forms, right? The server does all the calculation and then it sends it over the wire. And remember uh, update panels? Is that what I called, Dave? You're a web forms guy. Okay, a few, a few old guys here going, yeah, I remember that crap. Uh, update panels were a revelation, right? Because um, you didn't have to fully cycle your web form to get some part. part. You should imagine race components being update panel on the individual component that needs a change. Okay, so there's no JavaScript to do that, incidentally. There's a small amount of, uh, um, well, there is actually a small amount of JavaScript that you don't write. Okay, and how does it how does it know? Well, they, they use SignalR. They push the deltas down the wire using wow. SignalR for you. You don't do any of this. And so for every connected client, they maintain the entire state of the, of the UI for that client. And every time oh. some state, a change comes up, they push out the delta. Pretty cool, right? Because that's essentially what's happening inside Blazor under the covers in the WebAssembly layer, right? It's doing that. You click, it calculates a delta and pushes it into the DOM. So they abstracted that in such a way that they just use a signal R back channel instead of in process through WebAssembly. So signal R in terms of the WebAssembly, the rather page or the backend. Signal R is just sending the delta, so yeah, it's yeah, saying. Yeah, but the, the, the web socket establishment is that from the WASM or it's from the back? There's, there's a small amount of JavaScript that does the bootstrapping when you're using uh, raised components. Yeah. And you just include the line, you, you don't have to look at it. So, what's really good about raised components is the <coughs> final line here. And the reason I bring that up is because you can't debug Blazor at all, right? It's a nightmare. And uh, I'll show you right now what I'm talking about. I have a bug. I just noticed this. There's my app. It looks great, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna clear the log. Get rid of this here. Now this was working. I don't know how I killed it. You know, it's the usual stuff, right? No, no unit tests. I hit back. Get a heap of logs because I log in the hell out of this. And I get an error. Okay, great. Anyone want to have a look at the stack trace? Let's just go in here. Don't panic. I will make that bigger for you, Jack. Okay, so as you can see there, I've got a whole bunch of code. It looks all right. Stack? Yeah? Great? Oh, it's calculating the offset. Okay, got it. But I want to show you the problem. I'm going to come all the way up here, yeah. dig into the top of the... As we all know, you only ever look at the top of the stack, right? Yeah. There you go, object reference. Where? Not my code. I don't know. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what you get. It's just, it's not there yet. Like, this type of thing is frustrating. So, what's good about Razor Components is I can just put a breakpoint, you know, wherever, and just see how far it gets. Okay? Because it's running in the server. All of it is in the server. You're just attaching the, the debugger to the process running on your in your system, as you do right now. So, to contrast that really, really briefly... The only thing that's happening in raised components is happening on the server, and there's a thin uh, protocol for saying add and remove this fragment of markup. Okay, that's all it is. Over here, it's exactly the same logic, and you can see here we just cut out the single R channel, 
but the execution is occurring on .NET on WebAssembly. And that .NET is, of course, mono.NET. Right? So you can see how this is the same, but they've just been very clever and said, oh, that logic there, you know, that's what, remember I said they spun this out? Because they did this, and then someone said, wouldn't that be cool if we just moved that to there? It still worked. I think that's brilliant. And that, um, that just shows the potential of this technology. Uh, so I have listed a couple of things here, and I've probably already mentioned them all, but you can imagine that the, the main feature of the race components that happens is you've got to be connected. It's fast because it's only markup. If the server's already running, you've just got the cost of that page. The network traffic is super light. The real problem, which is pretty obvious, is scalability. How many customers can that one server host? It remains to be seen. I would suspect if you get over 100 because it's not that much state in the, you know, the end of the day. It's just a graph. Pretty sure the computer could hold 100 graphs in memory. Uh, but the last one, once again, I know I'm, you know, beating a dead horse on this one, but debugging, it literally is the worst experience. It totally reminds me of being at uni when we were doing C and yeah. you only had printf. Right, that's what that feels like. <laughs> and so I brought that up here straight away. What doesn't work? Console right line. That's sorry. I do it. I don't like it. Um, yeah, it's clearly not finished. I think we have to start with that. They reckon they're going to get debugging working. Uh, you know, Chrome has a remote debugging interface. There is the notion of. Um, mapping files for the, the script. You, that's going to happen. I've got no doubt that's going to happen. This is annoying because I was going to demo everything in Visual Studio, which I, I've been building on this project since Blazor 0.4. We're currently at Blazor 0.9. Um, and every time, there's been <coughs> significant changes. Because as of Blazor 0.8, they, they ditched Visual Studio 2017. And since this is one of my work computers, I didn't want to take an upgrade and then screw me at work. Yeah. So I've just ignored that for now. Um, yeah, I get a lot of weird errors. You would have seen it. There was no IntelliSense. There's squiggly lines everywhere. It's annoying. It's, it's not a big deal, but, you know, you, if you're used to your IDE working, it can be a bit crappy. So I think that's that's going to fix eventually. This one's quite interesting. I read, wrote here, there's no components on offer by Microsoft. And then I did some digging around, and they've got this thing called input base. And it's a really, really primitive implementation of, you know, date pickers and whatever, but it's really just an input component that changes the type and does some binding for you. It's got a long way to go, but I think that's a, that's a good start. And then, of course, I thought, well, what about the component vendors? Well, I was pretty confident that nothing, of course, there is. Both Telerik and DevExpress have begun. There's some links at the end here. They're both, uh, you know, experimental, download at your own risk type things. You can have a look, but I think that's... That's a good sign because Razor components and Blazor will use these components, exactly the same programming uh, model. Documentation is a bit frustrating. Uh, they do tell you what version the docs are for, but as I said, it's gone up so many versions in however many months and various blogs and docs and whatever are all arguing with each other on what the name of a property is or the attribute or whatever. It's frustrating. Uh, and that's part of the version churn. There's heaps of bugs. That I, like I showed you that one there. I'm, okay, it's me, but um, I don't know how. And there's all sorts of weird stuff. If I had an, a, I built my own Ionic input component that wraps theirs, and so I end up with this indirection in my binding layer. 
So you bind to my component, then I bind down to the input component. That doesn't work. And there's heaps of bugs on uh, GitHub about that issue, the indirect binding model. Uh, hopefully they fix that, because it really fundamentally uh, not going to work without that. And lastly, uh, if you want authentication, you're on your own. There's nothing going on there right now. Like you are, you, you got to do it all. And I don't know if you've done authentication in spars. It's always painful. So it's. Yep. I assume they're going to do that for us. Right. Uh, yep. So everything I showed you is Blazium. That's my library. It's not done yet. Uh, I will ship this to GitHub soon once <coughs> I fix up a couple of quirks and whatever, just for you guys to have a look at. That'll be linked on my um, my web page. So uh, if you are interested or you want to contact me, um, it's all there. So I've got some links here as well. I'll give this. Dave, can we serve files yet on the meetup or got some system? For, oh, they um, got the Slack channel, right? You can push that. So I'll put on the Slack channel this uh, if you are interested in having a look. Um, one thing I want to show you, even though I've already taken up three of your extra minutes, is, and I'm... I, I'm not, I'm not satisfied with just looking at the code and going, it looks good. I want to know what's happening under the covers. So I want to show you what's really happening uh, at the next layer down. If, uh, if we go into the object folder, one thing you learn about uh, Blazor, Razor components is that everything is generated. There's no runtime stuff going on here. Everything is a, is a generated C file, C sharp file. So I'm going to show you some of that. We're going to go to the top of the index page, which we have had a look at already. Um, here it is here. Okay, so you can see here, for those with good memories, yeah, there's our... Cool. Directives, okay, there's our base class, and then this guy. Build render tree is the only <coughs> function that you need to worry about if you care about the plumbing. So you can see here what you're doing is building a graph, okay, and every time this, I know it's impressive, right? But um, what we see here is look, open component, ion header, add some attributes. This is all code I wrote, right? They just mapped it into this graph. You might think, well, why did they do that? Well, the answer is, if you want to be efficient with the way you detect changes, you need a graph, right? You need to be able to say, this thing changed, therefore, I need to move up the graph and find the layer that needs to be re-rendered, okay? And so what they do is, notice all the IDs here? That ID is used in the SignalR channel or the, the DOM update channel to say, this part and all of its children need to be patched with this, right? So the engine is going to calculate the delta, and push it down. That's pretty much how React works as well. This diffing model is give or take how all the SPA frameworks work now. Um, and I think that's pretty cool, because then when you get further down, um, we're just going to go to the ion icon function here. You're going to see it's the same again, right? There's a simple component. There's not much going on. But you can see at every level, we're just recursing down into the red render fragment. The reason I bring all this up is, the programming model supports you doing this yourself. Okay? I know. So what I did was, to start off, I just grabbed the code out of there and stuck it in the override, and yeah, it works, right? It's literally the same thing. 
they generate that for you, or you can do it. Right? That's up to you, right? So let's have a look at one. So this is my attempt at a generic input component. It's not working, so it doesn't matter too much. But the point is, it's generic. It's got this input element, which is a render fragment, and it's got some code on an it that's going to build that. Okay, that's my goal. I want that, but I want to do it. And you might think, well, why would you do that? Well, the answer is sometimes you need conditional logic. For example, disable. You know, there's this... Uh, attribute syntax in HTML is quite common where the, the attribute has no value, that its existence is its value. It's essentially a Boolean. Now, you can't do that in the markup side of uh, Razor. It needs to be either an attribute or a content of an element. So if you want to do that, you've got to write that code yourself. So there it is, if disabled, add that. Okay, And even then, I have to do this. See, I have to... I have to put a value in. I mean, I could have put anything in, I suppose, but you may as well put the property name in, right? So I, I took that, scaffolded it out, stole the code from the object file, put it there and added the ifs in that worked. I was pretty happy with myself. Okay? And that's all that is. But note this. This is the cool part. What is an input element? Anyone want to guess? You probably already saw. It's a render fragment. Okay? That's all it is. Everything is a render fragment. And if we have a look at the markup... There it is. You see, it's embedded. So you just replace it. And that's pretty cool too, because in this instance, I didn't replace the entire render fragment graph. I just replaced a part of it. So you've got a lot of flexibility here. It's very powerful. And um, I think you have to do this at the end of the day. I think it's naive to think, oh, you could just work with that top layer. You're going to, if you're writing your own components, you probably have to do this. Mind you, if uh, DevExpress and Telerik and all those guys get their act together, you may not, and that's what I'm hoping, because it is a bit awkward. But you can see here, I just declare a type param and we're off to the races. It's pretty straightforward. So you can see there really is a lot of potential here. It's a little bit early, but I'm looking forward to this. I really am. Any questions on this? Anything at all? Well, I mean, the reason this won't have the same problem as Silverlight is that Silverlight was killed by Apple indirectly, right? Apple said no plug-in architectures on the iPad. This is WASM. WASM is already on the iPad. It's an open standard. It's just built on top of open standards. And if you use the server model, they can't stop you unless they shut down the WebSocket. So I don't think this is going to get hobbled because of political reasons. And I do see that this is an evolution of Razor Pages and MVC before and Web Forms before that. So I really think this is this has got a future. I really do, actually. Mind you, I'm not so sure about Blazor just yet, but definitely Razor components. You can see a lot of people see the value in that. The concern to me is WebSocket. Well, you don't have to do it. So I mean, it's just yeah, no, that's just my main concern. How's it a concern? It's a WebSockets are in every browser. Yeah, yeah, but the things, the component complication for security, some things are just like some people just don't open that. You don't have options. It's just dependent limitations. Well, on you know, you're working, you know, it's it's Signal R. It's not actually WebSocket. And Signal R has multiple layers. Yeah, yes, right. right. One so of those like layers is, poling, a, yeah. is a long pole, right? They yeah, can't block long poles. Yeah. Literally, that's how the internet works. So 
I don't think that you have to worry about that. But, you know, the days of Signal R being blocked because of WebSockets being, it's not, you know, it's, shut it's, down, it's I think the, they're over, man. Yeah, really it is. Do. It is. To me, it's like, you know, sometimes Signal R has these, uh, you know, um, the sticky session problems. So the, the, the kind of way how you authenticate Signal R. Well, you realise SignalR was rewritten, right? This is the version of SignalR for ASP.NET Core where yeah. they've simplified their model. Yeah, I, I look at it. I'm actually using it. So, but still, the authentication of SignalR WebSocket communication, to me, at certain state, it's not like a, you know the other part of it. It's not that mature yet. Well, uh, look, that may be true. And yeah. all I would say is, as a developer, you won't write a single line of it. So if it's buggy the vendor will have to fix it because there's no code, right? You just do it. So if it's not going to work, they'll know soon enough and you just raise a bug and wait five years and it'll get fixed. Um, <laughs> just like we always do, right? So, But I think that this has got legs. Um, Dave was saying that they're already using this, right? I would bet wow. they're using the raised components. That would be my guess. I, I would guess that. Yeah. Any other questions? Not too far out, Dave. I know I like to go on, but... Thanks, man. Very entertaining talk. Um, I did see Steve Sanderson and Dan Roth do a talk on Blazor at the summit, and um, that was also very entertaining. There must be something about Blazor that really makes for a really good presentation. (laughs) Well, I should say, uh, although I didn't read out all the links in the end of my uh, PowerPoint, one of the links is um, Steve Sanderson's very good presentation on NDC 2019. It's way better than mine. In fact, I watched it last night just to make sure that I didn't miss anything. It's really good. Um, He does talk a bit slow, so just turn it up. I reckon (laughs) 1.5. But it's brilliant. And... um, yeah, he goes on way more detail, way more uh, polished than, than you know, I am, and uh, totally watch that. Yeah. I guess, I mean, without giving any NDA stuff away, I've, I've sort of been putting WebAssembly and Blazor in the, oh, let's, I'll, I'll wait till something settles down without just not to pay attention, but having seen the demo in, at the summer, I thought, ah, actually, they're, they're devoting some resources to this, and this, this looks... In, Really interesting. I could see some potential for it. So well, without giving away the NDA, then did yes. they mention race components?